on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Judea, near the Jordan River, there was some kind of a clamor going on. And people began to gather at this river because of a voice. And people were tired in Judea and in Jerusalem because the, the religious powers of the day were the Sadducees who were those religious leaders who were tainted by the Greco-Roman Empire that had come in to uh, Israel and, and Jerusalem and began to establish who the high priest would be and who the rulers over that community would be. And the Sadducees became a bit secularized to fit that Roman way of life. And the 70 Sanhedrin that made up the council, out of the 70 at this time, there were only three that were Pharisees. The rest were Sadducees of a liberal bent of theology. But up in the hills in the area of Galilee is where most of the Pharisees came from. They were the group that migrated uh, after the Babylonian captivity back into Jerusalem, trying to keep true to the Torah uh, and the law. They, they understood that all the prophets had something to say, and so they were so careful to obey the law. And so the Pharisees were in that area of Galilee, and, and there's a voice standing between these uh, religious leaders and religious voices of the day from rabbis that were speaking of whether uh, the law was super strict uh, uh, like Hillel and, and those of Shema. And these uh, voices were in this place. But out of the wilderness comes a voice that begins to cry out. He's a young man in his 30s that at this point is ready now to burst on the scene as a rabbi. But this rabbi is unique because this rabbi speaks with authority and declaration. He's got speak the authority of God's word, but the unique thing about him is he's also a Levite. He's a Kohen. He's a priest. For his father, uh, they say, may have been Zechariah, the, the priest and the high priest at the time. And some uh, consider that possibly this man named John could have been the right, uh, rightful one who was to be high priest, but because of the political situations in uh, the Jerusalem, uh, puppet priests were put in place. But this voice comes out, and by doing this, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees come in to hear him. They don't tell him to shut up. They don't tell him to stop. They wouldn't dare because this guy looks like Elijah. This guy's kind of scary looking. They know he's the priest. They know he's a rabbi. He's wearing camel hair, and he's pretty wild, and he's calling for everyone to repent. And he's calling them to come into these waters. Nothing scares this guy when they question him. Are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not. I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He's quoting Isaiah. And he, and he speaks and he speaks against those Pharisees. He speaks against those Sadducees. He says, the axe is at the root. You think that you're something just because you are a child of Abraham. I can, uh, God can make these uh, rocks children of Abraham. He wouldn't back down, man. This guy was the real deal, and he was fire. 
and he's calling Israel to repent, and he's baptizing them. Priests would baptize people, but many times they'd baptize the proselytes, the Gentiles who were coming in. Jews would baptize themselves in ceremonial cleaning, but this guy was representing God and calling Israel into the waters. And that's pretty amazing, and it's pretty awesome. They called him rabbi. Are you the one? Are you Messiah? No, I'm not. I am a voice. And how many of you know when you hear a voice that's from heaven, when you hear a voice that doesn't match all the other voices, it's a voice that sticks out of the religious rhetoric. It comes past the churchiness. It comes past everything else, and it rings true in your heart. And he began to gather his disciples. There were young men in the community that were hungry for God. They were hungry to hear a voice, and they, that voice resonated, and they began to follow after John. They called him the baptizer. He would immerse people to repent and get ready for what was coming. Come on, we, we've heard the voice. And so when he calls uh, and begins to cry out, his disciples, or in Hebrew it's called uh, the Talmudim, so the Talmudim come forward at this time. And as the Talmudim come forward, someone on that thing, please uh, give me some power here. Do I have an overhead person? Hey. Where's my mic? There we go. So the Talmudim, in the Gospel of John, we see an introduction to at least five that were John's disciples. And what we don't recognize, what we don't realize, based on Hollywood and the movies we've seen, but these Talmudin, these disciples who followed after John were young men. And we get introduced to their names. And we see that Andrew uh, is with them. And Andrew goes and invites his brother Peter. And then Philip comes in, and Philip invites his friend Nathaniel. And it doesn't say who that fifth one is, but we would know by who wrote the gospel. It was young John. And the thing that we can so many times don't realize, like I said, because of Hollywood and everything else, but the disciples were at average age of 17 and 18 years old. The youngest being John, who they believe was somewhere between 14 and 15 years old. The oldest being Peter, who was married. And at age 18, you could marry. So we believe that Peter, the oldest, of course he was married. You remember that he had a mother-in-law who was sick and ill, and Jesus healed her. The other reason we know that he was over 18 is according to the Gospel of John, when they question as to whether Jesus paid taxes for the temple tax, Jesus said yes, and according to Leviticus 18, you had to be 18 or older to pay the temple tax. And Jesus told Peter, go down and fish, and when you get the uh, finance out of that fish's mouth, go and pay your taxes and mine. Now, he had 12 disciples with him, but he didn't pay their taxes, ergo, they were all under 18. So you have this young group of Talmudin, the, the disciples following after John. Young guys who, who were hungry and they heard the word. There are two references, one in Matthew, one in John, where Jesus in fact calls his disciples little children. 
Because these guys are teenagers. Do you get this? I mean, can you imagine the apostles that are going to bring the weight of the kingdom of God to planet Earth? Are 17 and 18 years old. But we tell our 17 and 18-year-olds, you're not ready for anything yet. Go for four more years of college, then go for work, then go do this, then go do that. We tell them you're irresponsible. We tell them that you don't know enough. Come on. Every hungry heart, God can use powerfully. Amen? John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked, and As Jesus walks by, he goes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John shows his two disciples, This is Jesus, Jesus. this is Messiah. And, And the two of them, so hungry, they follow after Jesus. And Jesus stops and says, What do you want? And they say, Where are you going? And he says, Follow me. In other words, check it out. It says they spend the rest of the day with him. And so then the first encounter is with Andrew, and Andrew runs back to Peter. Now, Peter uh, was probably uh, operating in the fishing community and, and was following John, his brother, because he was hungry as well. But Andrew says, we saw him. We found the one who is Messiah. And he brings Peter to Jesus. And as Peter approaches, Jesus says, ah, Simon, son of Jonah, And he gives him a nickname, and this is what rabbis do. When rabbis begin to collect their Talmudin, their disciples, he calls them a nickname, which he speaks to their destiny. He says, you're Simon, but I am calling you Cephas, or Peter. You're a rock. And so Peter is amazed at meeting this Jesus You see, every Israelite boy would be trained in Torah. From ages 5 to 10, he would study and memorize the first five books of the law. From age 10 to 13, he would learn the Midrash, and the, and the Mishnah, he, the Midrash, the, the uh, oral law that they would memorize. And then at age 13 was his bar mitzvah. And at this point, if he was an excellent student, a rabbi would come and find the students that were exceeding in the knowledge of the law, oral and written. But if not, they would go to a trade uh, with their father's house uh, and learn the trade that they were supposed to to know. But they were well-versed in the word. And so uh, here you have Peter all the way at 18, who obviously went into fishing because he... He just didn't have the book smarts and the knowledge smarts, it would seem. And sometimes we get passed over because we don't match up to the curriculum and the educational system of the day. But he had a hunger and he heard the call of a voice that drew him to the waters, that drew him to the Lamb. Next in John uh, chapter 1, it tells us that then Philip, the next day, goes and gets his friend Nathaniel and said, we have found Messiah. He is the one. Look, they spent one day with him. 
They remember the testimony that John said that I saw when I baptized him a dove is coming down from heaven and a voice from God that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And that was a typical phrase for disciples to their rabbis because it was standard for for disciples to tend to their rabbi, to tend to tying their sandals and to washing their clothes and to getting them whatever they need. John said, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. Philip says, Nathaniel, you've got to come. And we know Nathaniel was a young man who was hungry for God. He too heard that voice crying in the wilderness. In fact, he was sitting under a tree meditating and praying unto God. And as he, he, Philip approaches him, he says, uh, the Messiah, where's he from? Galilee, up in Nazareth. And he goes, can anything, come, anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? That's where we're from, right? It's like we're praying for revival in Detroit, and people are going, can, it, can a revival happen in Detroit? Could it? Could Messiah come out of Nazareth? And so he says, yeah, Philip, come on, come on. And so young Philip, 17-year-old Philip, he comes up to Jesus. He goes, hey, what's up? And Jesus says, Nathaniel <laughs> gives him a nickname. To whom there's no guile. Guile, there's, he's, he's a young man that is pure in his pursuits. He's honest in his speech. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't swindle. There's no guile in him. He's, he's not harsh. He's not rude. He's not anything. This is a pure heart for God. Jesus calls him, though, the one without guile. Nathaniel is blown away. Jesus reading the, the description on his face says, I saw you under the tree praying. Now, I'm reasoning out that it's possible he was praying under that tree, oh God, make me a man with no guile. So that when Jesus called it out, it blew his mind. And Jesus said, you ain't seen nothing yet, son. He said, you shall see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, me. And he's, he's just captivated. And so you've got four of them there. And then, of course, the writer, it's John. I'm pretty sure we know that John had followed after Jesus. So then, in the days coming, as they met Jesus, then Jesus is beginning his ministry, and Jesus is walking on the beach. And when he sees Peter... Uh, fishing and still fishing he then calls him the rabbinical call to his talmudin to say come and he says peter follow me that's why they're ready to drop their nets and ready to go they had an introductory meeting they had met him john tells us but they're ready to go they're going to follow and same with james and john he gave them the nickname sons of thunder rash brash guys that were like just on fire. You got a little 14-year-old following after his big brother. You know, James was like, come on. And they're following after him. And so Jesus is now calling his disciples, but wait a minute. These are John's disciples. And so they hear the call. Come and I will make you. He comes to James and John and they're mending their nets. He comes to Peter and he's fishing and he says, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Follow me. What a privilege 
for a rabbi Jesus who speaks with authority. This rabbi seems to be greater than John. As he comes forth out of the wilderness where the Spirit had driven him for 40 days, he's now coming forth and miracles are happening. Yeah, I'll go with him. They're jumping ship off of John's discipleship. He, he was their rabbi, but listen to, listen to what John says. John says this in 3, 28 and 30. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy, is my, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. John transfers his Talmud and his disciples to Jesus, rightfully and gladly so. So when he says that he's come for his bride, and I'm just the friend of the bridegroom, he's speaking Jewish language to the wedding of a bridegroom who picks his bride. And he's the announcer who will come and announce when the bridegroom is returning. And so they go with Jesus, and John says, I must decrease. And as Jesus' ministry continues to go forward, John is stepping back because Messiah has come. He did his job. He did his work. And now Jesus is training his young disciples to follow after him. Peter, the rock. Yeah, he really wasn't a rock yet was he? But God calls us. This calling that I'm talking about today, that voice that penetrate and penetrated your life that you heard, that call that brought you forward to be introduced to Jesus, your Savior. There was something that dragged you, something that called you, that enticed you. It was a voice in the wilderness of voices. It was the sound of something from heaven. When you've heard so many other things, your heart burned within you. And it was something that drew you to Jesus. And you remember where you were. You remember the time. Or maybe you kind of lived into it and came into a knowledge of Christ Jesus. But in it you realize that just because you have a call on your destiny doesn't mean you are shaped yet. These 13, 17, 16, 18, 19-year-olds are following after Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, you see that time and time again, they just don't get it. There are challenges for them. They get rebuked by their rabbi over and over again. And their rabbi pushes them out into situations that just freaks them out. They don't know what to do with it. Jesus, we're out here, man. You've been preaching a really long time. These people are getting hungry. Set them home. I'm afraid of crowd control. There's going to be a, a riot out here. These people are hungry and they get mean. <laughs> Jesus said, feed them. We don't have any food. He goes, you feed them. I got nothing. Right? These young men are used to having their mother feed them. Now they got to go feed somebody. 
He says, well, what do you got? So they go out and they look for five loaves and two fish. That's, this is it, man. We collected it. They weren't happy with giving it up either. I imagine the sons of thunder went and got it, you know. Give me that bread. <laughs> Took some little kid. Give me that, kid. <laughs> and of course, Nathaniel said, no, 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 young man. Can we please? The master's no guile there. Jesus says here, he begins to bless it. And he breaks it, and he begins to pass it out. And these young men begin to give it out and give it out, and they're blown away. They collect 12 baskets. It's it's said they fed five. They had enough food for five, but they fed 5,000. Come on. That blows your head. And that's that's just men. How many women and children were there? You see, and, and these are challenges, and, and they're wondering what they should do. And James and John says, look at Jesus, man. When you become king, will you put me on a right and, and left-hand side? That's what my mom wants. And the rest of the disciples are like, you idiot, shut up. I should be there. Says that they're fighting amongst each other and this and that. They're scared. They're challenged. They're out in the wind and the waves, and they're scared to death. You see, you would think that, well, they're fishermen. Yeah, four of them are. That leaves eight of them that aren't in a boat on Galilee where the tempest is tossed and the wind and the waves, and they're scared to death. Jesus is sleeping. And then Jesus, they're going, oh, I don't know what to do. There's the waves. This is crashing. Jesus, don't you care? He says, what's wrong with you? You have little faith. And he speaks to the wind and he speaks to the waves. And then he says, didn't you learn anything by the feeding of the 5,000? I didn't know we were supposed to. Yeah, we learned you can do great things. He said, no, no, no. He didn't say this, but the implication is, I taught you. I'm the rabbi. You're my disciples. And the concept in rabbinic study is, you are becoming like your rabbi. That's why when Peter said, if it's you, Jesus, the next time they were on a storm, and I love this story, it's just awesome, the next time they go uh, leave the Gerardines where they uh, cast out legions of demons and they get back in the boat and they go across and the winds and the waves start coming up again and they're by themselves, Jesus was just kind of hanging out, right? And, and, and as uh, they're in the boat trying to get to the other side, they're freaking out again. And it says Jesus is walking across the water, and it says he was going to continue to go, but he saw they were in trouble. Could you imagine, you know, you're going like, there's Jesus walking on the water. Jesus, is that you? Yeah, it's me. If it's you, can I do that too? Come on, Pete. Come on. Why? Because that's what he was training them to do. And if you are called to be a disciple of Jesus, you are being trained to be like Jesus. There's a calling on our lives, brothers and sisters. There's something. The reason you're here on a Sunday morning instead of that nice warm bed is because something in you called you. Something in you says, I am not living my life for the pursuit of a dollar or for a few pat on the backs 
from people who just want something from me anyway. There's a greater destiny in me. And you're, this is a company of people who have been called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it burns in you. And you don't know what to do with it because you're being challenged. Peter the rock, he finally gets one answer right. Uh, who do men say that I am? You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Ooh, mic drop, bam. Jesus says, yes, but you didn't figure that on your own. The Father revealed that to you. And then I must go, and I must go into Jerusalem, and I must die and be put to death, and after three days I will rise from the dead. And Peter goes, you will not die? No. And Jesus turns around and said, get behind me, Satan. He was on a run for a little bit. Then Jesus calls him the devil. <laughs> Anybody, any disciples here that have had that kind of situation? I figured it all out, figured it out. I was like, no, nah, I didn't get this figured out. Like sheep, they all go astray. What are you going to do with, amidst a world of all these crazy adults and Roman soldiers and whips and beatings and scourgings and legal trials and all this? The 18-year-old, the 15-year-old, the 17-year-olds, they all scatter. They, what, what are we going to do? They didn't learn enough from the multiplication of bread and the casting out of demons. Jesus sent them into villages and sickness and disease was taken out and devils cast out. And this is the kingdom of God in their lives. But they had challenges. They didn't get it. Peter himself is the one who denies. The Rock. Remember his nickname? The Rock? Huh? He didn't look like The Rock. What's, what's The Rock's name? Dwayne Johnson, right? I don't think Peter looked like Dwayne Johnson. He's the oldest. Yeah, 19. He's The Rock. He's the pillar. He's, he's what the church, his confession is what the church is being built on. His faith. And how many of you know he faltered even after the resurrection? He, he, he faltered. Don't worry about that. Your calling isn't based on your performance. Your calling is based on God's election of you. And so, these are the challenges of the calling. And so, we can't quit on our calling. Why do we quit on a calling? It's a great question, isn't it? Because you've all been called. If you have come after Jesus, you heard the voice, you heard the pull. Now, many say, well, call, you know, uh, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm born again, but uh, I never got a call on my life. We've turned this religious language into something. So I'm not called. See, to have a calling, you've been called either to become a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist. I, I don't have a calling on my life. Look at if you came to Jesus and you became his disciple, you have been called. And you have a calling on your life. The call of God is not an occupation or vocation. We've turned it into a religious office. The call of God is calling you out of a world of sin, out of being dead in trespasses and sin, and called you into his glorious light to preach the kingdom, to become his disciple, which means you are called to be like him. It's not an occupation. 
You may never become a pastor. You may never get a dime for any ministry you do. It's not a vocation. It's not an occupation. And it's not a ministry. Did you get the call? No, I didn't get the call. But I'm following Jesus as best I can. Look at what we've done with the kingdom of God. The call is a ministry. What's your ministry? I get together with religious people, with pastors and leaders. What's your title? How many at your church? What's your calling? I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I live and breathe and die for Jesus every day, every minute. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) That's us. We're the call. So whether you have a title, whether you have initials after your name or not, you've been called of God. But most of us have quit on that calling because the religious leadership has made it a select few. And so God has chosen you. This call goes out. Many are called, few are chosen. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the chosen. The Spirit of God birthed in you has made you his disciple. And so why do we typically quit? Number one, we're afraid to fail. Number one reason for all of us, how many of you love Jesus so much that you don't want to do something wrong to offend him? Right? And it usually takes you out of doing anything. Could could I be really honest with you? How can we do anything without failing? No, seriously. How can I do anything for Jesus? Really, operating in the things of the kingdom of heaven. How am I going to do that without failing? I don't know how. Right? So of course there's failing. Jesus didn't turn these young guys away. John, you're 13. Get lost. Come back when you're older, kid. (laughs) Really, a runny nose snot? No. He doesn't turn any of us away. Of course, that's part of the program. Failure is in fact the instructor. Because you must decrease as he increases your faith faith in itself is a challenge to our understanding am i right faith is when you leave your ability and your understanding of things behind but if we keep doing things based on our ability to control the outcome And our ability to reason and understand what's going to happen, that's not faith. That's you. Now, thank God we can offer things to God and do them ourselves. But faith is when you go out past your ability, past your understanding, and the faith gives the opportunity for failure every time. If you're worried about failing, great. You're in the right place for faith. That's why when it happens and it turns out good, you rejoice. Oh my gosh! Did you see what God did? It's like, okay, that must have been faith because you didn't have enough to believe for it. Right? See, we've made faith. I have so much faith. I'm going to do this, and I know God will come true. Faith is my knowing that God's going to come through at every time. Now, that's good, strong faith. Yes, it is. But in reality, you don't know what God's going to do. 
but you can trust him that whatever he does is going to be good. That's faith. That's, that, that, that's faith when you push past what you didn't understand. Peter had enough faith to stand on the water, but, but when he became self-conscious of himself and the surrounding, he began to sink. But he kept his eyes on Jesus. Many of us are afraid. You're afraid that you're going to uh, disappoint Jesus. But you can't disappoint Jesus because he's adopted you. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do you think I'm disappointed when my grandchildren come and give me a drawing that I can't figure out what in the world that is? That's no good. Go back and try again. Really? Right? Learning how to ride that bike. Oh, you fell down. Stupid kid. It's the last time I... That's how we think God's going to treat us. So we're afraid to step out. We're afraid to do things. But if you would trust his character, true faith is trusting the character of God. Despite what the outcome will be. The three Hebrew boys going through that fiery furnace says, he may deliver us, he may not, but we ain't bowing. Now that's faith. That's faith. Burn me, whatever. I'm trusting in God. So, number one, the reason many of us have quit on our discipleship and on our calling is we're afraid that we will fail. And could I just tell you, just show up. Come on back and show up. The second reason is don't live someone else's calling. We compare ourselves with others. God didn't call you to be like somebody else. The only person God called you to be like is Jesus Christ. Christ in you is going to shape the glory of an expected hope. And so he's shaping you. I love the story where John tells it where uh, Jesus restores Peter after asking him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then he prophesies that Peter, in fact, will be that rock that when three years earlier he met that skinny kid and he said, you're the rock. He is the chief apostle. He is going to be the one who, who brings this gospel and protects the words of Jesus Christ and the apostles' doctrine and trains up the others. And he's the one that when he's old, they will take him. He will not be allowed to walk where he wants to. They're going to take him. And in fact, they're going to nail him to a cross and he's going to give his life. And I love the story of of Peter in the end when they're ready to crucify Peter and they nail him to a cross and he's being nailed and he's speaking to his wife who stayed with him through all those years of ministry who understood the day he came running home and said honey I think I found Messiah can I leave I need to follow the rabbi he called me honey he called me a husband a washer but I didn't even get started in my career yet but he called me go and as he's being nailed to a cross, he's encouraging his wife as she's hung on that cross. And they nail her in a, to a cross of crucifixion and she's dying. And he's calling, call on Jesus, honey. Call on Jesus. And they're ready to put him in the ground. And they nail him to a cross and he says, wait, wait. He says, don't put me up on that cross. He says, you put me upside down for I am not worthy to die as my Savior died. And they put Peter upside down in the ground. For him to die. Because he followed. He became a rock for Jesus Christ. 
Well, when Jesus restores him and tells him that that's how he's going to die and that's what's going to happen in his life, Peter's going like, mm, okay, wow, yeah. And he looks around and he sees John. And he goes, but what about him? Still working it out, see. And Jesus says, what does it matter if I have him stay till he sees my return? You follow me. What does it matter that somebody else uh, uh, did it better and raised an amazing kids better than all of us? Wow, how'd they do that? I don't know. What does it matter that someone else has a, a more important ministry? What does it matter that someone got a miraculous healing and deliverance and you had to scratch and fight to get over your addiction? Testimony time just tears people up. Someone stands up and goes, hallelujah, I've been a heroin addict, smoking addict, drinking addict, and God delivered me. Boom, I have been free, two hours and set free. And you're going like, oh, man, why won't he do that for me? Jesus says, I, I called you to be you. I called you to follow me. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about her. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about her. Don't worry about him. You follow me. Don't worry about failure. I'm training you. I put the coach inside of you. And then thirdly, the whole training is to know who we are and who we love. Peter Thou art a rock. You see, he said, who do men say that I am? Once Peter knew who he was, Jesus began to identify who Peter was. Who are you? This whole process of following after Jesus helps us find out who we are, where our failures are, where our flesh is weak, where our battles reside, so that we can give it all to him. Know who you are and who you love, and that's Jesus. This is a call of destiny and a weight of glory. Every one of you has been called unto God, and God has called you to a ministry of serving him 24-7. That is your calling. And may I encourage all of you to start with 5, 13, to 19-year-olds. If we're going to be like Jesus, I think we're supposed to be doing something like that. Where's your band of young people following after you? Oh, they just irk me too much. They, I just don't understand this next generation. They don't understand the next generation. So where are your Talmudim? Where are ours? But see, first, where's our calling? What happened to it? Would you bow your heads this morning? Holy Spirit, come right now. Holy Spirit, and identify. Bring that calling into our lives, Lord. Let us remember that we are called of God. Let us remember we heard the voice unto salvation. We heard that call to you, Jesus. And if we heard the call to you, we are to become like you. We're following after you, Jesus. Minister right now, Lord. Speak right now to every human heart.
you remember when you were a teenager and you heard the voice of God? Do you remember when you were in your 20s and you knew God called you to know the gospel? Do you remember when you were 30 and you were reminded, I need you to minister? Do you remember in your 40s when God said, don't forget what I've called you to? Many of you have laid your dreams and your calling aside for the pursuit of other things. You've forfeited them. You've quit on them. Don't quit on him. He's not quit on you. Everything you've been through, he's been shaping you as a disciple. He's waiting for you to call others to follow. And there are some of you that are called to leave home. There are some of you that are called to pursue God, a career, and to pursue ministry. But it's always combined. It's all one together. We've stopped telling young people that there's a call. We now make it a choice. And we, we strip them of the burden of that glory that's on them. Some of you have been robbed of the glory that sat on you to prompt you to do things. Come on, we should be doing things so outrageous for Jesus. And some of you have it in you to do it but you've been robbed and you put it away. I'm asking, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm asking every 13 to 25 year old to stand up. 13 to 25. kingdom of God resides with you. Can you imagine Jesus saying, this is my church, my bride. They're going to take the gospel and turn the world upside down. When will we treat them like that? When will we respect their youth and their zeal? When will we call out the calling on their lives and say, you are blessed of God. There's a calling on you. Mighty woman of God. Mighty servant of the Lord. It's about time we stop walking past these young people. It's about time we start gathering to us. You have something to give to them. Father, I pray for these disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray the weight of the glory of your calling is on them. They want something different than they've seen in church. They want something different than being a pew sitter. They want to change the world. They want to change their culture. They're tired of the rhetoric of the church, of meeting once a week and doing nothing. And so am I. Is anybody else? Is there anybody else willing to stand with them, to be called like them? Is there anybody to stand with these young people that say, I'm tired of this religion. I'm tired of this stuff. I am a disciple of Jesus. I am called. And my calling, I'm calling it back. I'm taking my calling back. And I'm going to reach this world. And I'm tired of church. I'm the church. I'm the bride of Christ. I'm so passionately in love with Jesus that nothing's going to stop me. 
I'm not going to curb what I say to people. I'm not afraid to be embarrassed for Jesus. And I'm going to do some radical things for the Lord. I've got ideas that I've never prompted on because I didn't have the money. I didn't have the cash. I didn't have backing. But none of that matters. Come on and be the church. Be the bride. God, I am calling for you to fall mightily on these, your people, and bring forth that calling to life with a weight of glory. There's destiny on you people. It's not too late. Be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on.